Welcome back, everybody, to Pixel Project Radio. My name is Rick Firestone. I'm your hostess with the mostest, and today we are continuing our coverage on one of the most important JRPGs of all time, Final Fantasy VI. I'm joined once again, thankfully, by Chris Copleen, uh, not the Dick Dragon, just the voice introducing the Dick Dragon from the Retro Hangover podcast. Chris, man, it is great to be with you once again. I wish I could make a dragon sound, but I can't, and that's why I'm not the dick dragon. <laughs> but it is great to be back, and I'm happy to be here, and like I said last episode, I'm always happy to talk some Final Fantasy VI, and I love your show, so it's it's great to be here, man. Happy to contribute. Well, we're certainly happy to have you. We got a lot of positive uh, feedback from the last episode, um, and you know everybody echoed our praises of your knowledge of the game. It was it was fantastic. Um, a yeah. couple housekeeping things before we start today. Um, you might notice, folks listening at home, that Ben is not here. Uh, ben is not able to join us on this episode, unfortunately. Well, and, and I suppose this is as good of a time as ever uh, to make a quasi-official uh, announcement. Uh, ben has unfortunately decided to step away from the show. Uh, it was mutual. Everything's good. Everybody's still, you know, friends. It's all good. Um, it's just, you know, he, uh, personal life and work life and everything, you know, life happens. Uh, so he has an open invitation to come back anytime he wants. So bridge has not been burned still as friends as ever. He just needs some time to himself. So hope that's okay with all of you listening out there. So, uh, with that out of the way, um, one clarification that I wanted to make from last time and Chris, I'm wondering if you have any information on this is that uh, supposedly Ted Woolsey, so we talked all about Ted Woolsey last time, he is uh, a legendary localizer in the uh, in, in the JRPG community, specifically with Square. And we were talking about him a lot last time and his uh, translation efforts here. I had heard from a source that I, that I, that I trust that this was done, the, the localization for Final Fantasy VI was done in 30 days. Jesus. However... I personally couldn't find any information to substantiate that claim aside from where I heard it. Do you know anything about this? Uh, I don't. I I mean, it wouldn't shock me. A, a lot of the translation times back then were really kind of a quick turnaround, which is kind of kind of, kind of really surprising considering that the, the delay in time of release from when it would come out in Japan until it came out in the United States was was like a few months if not a year sometimes but yeah though they have these deadlines back then that were that were more egregious than they are today and you just be like hey you got four weeks you know turn around and uh get this translation out we need a game to put out on the market so it doesn't shock me but i i haven't heard the exact amount of time or nor do i know of any sources where it says how long it took them to do that there is a when i was hunting to uh find find a source for that claim i did find a really good interview with him uh, that I will link in the show notes. It's just, it's a really fascinating thing. And it has changed a lot. Like nowadays, it's practically like a Hollywood team of of folks working on the writing and the rewriting and the editing and the translating. It's it's a whole ordeal. And I think Woolsey said back in the day, it was, you know, just dude with his typewriter or his computer. <laughs> uh, but still, 1,300 pages. I know he did at least three uh, or two revisions 30 days, I mean, that's insane to me. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the crunch either, how how many hours he was working. I, I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure that was 30 days straight, 
back in those days. That was like <laughs> something they did. And it's like, hey, you know, Japanese, just try to make it sound normal, okay? See you in a month. And they just like <laughs> lock the door and walk away. Yeah. I was, uh, I was, I don't mean to veer too much off on a tangent, but I, I was reading or listening to something recently and like, you know, one thing that I try not to do, especially now that I'm opening myself up to other cultures as I'm learning Japanese, one thing I try not to do is uh, to make value judgments on other cultures based on my perspective as an American, right? right. And uh, back in like the 80s and 90s, for every source that I've heard, like uh, these Japanese workers that were putting in all this crunch, like they look back on those days like fondly, like, mm -hmm. oh man, those were the days, you know? And it's like, I, as a, as an American in 2023, that is a weird uh, thing to think about. Like, it doesn't align with our values, but um, I try to remind myself all the time that, you know, that is a different culture and it was a different time. So it, it's still, I mean, crunch does have a lot of unethical aspects to it, um, but it, it's not fair to lampoon like the staff or or the or the game itself over something like that. I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot since we last recorded, um, and and I wanted to you know open up a dialogue if you wanted to have one about it. Oh sure. Um, I mean, there's a couple things you have to consider. I mean, it's I think it's a lot easier today to look back on that time and be like, wow, that sounds horrible. They must have hated life. But there's there's a lot of things to to consider here. Is that one video game teams were a lot smaller. So even today, if you look at like indie development companies or just indie dev teams, they're probably putting in a lot more hours per week as like per capita than you are your major studios. They're probably more structured. Um, well, not they're not unionized, unfortunately. I wish they were, but a lot of them aren't unionized. But I, I do think there is this aspect too when you look at an indie developer and like, wow, this person made this game all by themselves, and this person will come out and be like, I put. 16 hours a day or 70 hours a week into making this game and it's lionized and celebrated. I mean, even to this day with smaller developers, uh, but it's the big developers were like, I can't believe you worked, you know, those insane hours to get this game out the door. So, I mean, that, that still kind of exists if you apply it back then, Western or Japanese. Uh, just you do hear stories, though, of like STI saying when they tried to have the Western developers work with the Japanese developers that the Japanese developers thought the Western developers were lazy because they weren't like sleeping on the floor at night because that was the standard. Even when you go to the development, I think it was Final Fantasy V. Might be wrong, but like the, for, the for, for the development of Final Fantasy V, you know, you have like Sakaguchi and that staff, they would sleep in the office and like the entire day they'd be pounding beers, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes. And then when like the night came, they just go like, get shit-faced at the bar and then get right back to it the next day. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm no fan of Crunch. I'm not here to advocate for Crunch. But I think that was part of it. When you have a smaller team and these games are more passion projects and you're more close-knit and becomes more of a small family, I think everyone's just... And again, no justification. Not saying it's right. But it's something that I think people were more willing and expected to do. And I think people just didn't mind doing that was just the culture and the mentality. It was also, you know, also a very, very, very male dominated uh, market or industry, even more so than it is today. I mean, you had you did have female developers from what I recall, mostly in the art and music department, like Ryoko Kodama in Sega being a big part of the Fantasy Star team. But you look at, you know, Square, Squaresoft during this time, I can't think of any female member of the team off the top of my head. I mean, it's all men. And that could also be a contributing factor to that.
Kaori Tanaka is the only one that I can think of. Uh, Soraya Saga, otherwise, as she's known by. But I mean, I mean, you're right. It 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 was a different time, and I I think the sense of pride that they probably felt uh, to create something that is so much bigger, you know, than their individual efforts probably contributed a lot to, uh, you know, that 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 feeling. It, it's a complicated issue, um, you know. Like like we we both feel similarly. I crunch is bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's not good, um, but it's not so cut and dry that you know. It's tough because you can experience feelings and periods of of pride and things of that nature as you're as you're going through it. So it's it's tricky, and we could probably, honestly, man, do a whole episode on that. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, we've got we've got some fantasies to go through. Not quite the final one. Not, there are not, a few after. Not quite. This, not but... quite. They kept trying. <laughs> <laughs> I really, yeah, I, I'm sure everybody has looked at that when they first find the series Final Fantasy. When mm. It took them seven times. Okay. Anyway, today, everybody, we will be playing up through the opera. We are going to talk about the opera. It's uh, oh, it's it's so good. But we'll get there. Um, today, we are going to pick up where we last left off. We are on our way to South Figaro. Mm. So why don't we get started? So you, you've escaped the castle. That's good. You've escaped Kefka's wrath. And now you've made it in to, you know, to go find Bannon and join the Returners. So you are Locke, Edgar, and Tara at this point. And you got to get over to South Figaro. And Tara is still feeling conflicted. She's feeling a sense of distortion in her identity. And Locke and Edgar, they're trying to reassure her. And we head over there. Now, you get into South Figaro, uh, or Figaro, and I always, did you ever get, like, call it Figaro? I always, for some reason, I always called it Figaro, and then I was like, it is Figaro. I don't know why I do that, but uh, you go, go ahead. You're about to say something. No, I I was just going to say, I've always said Figaro just because, you know, the classic Looney Tunes thing, like, that word is just in my head. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh. Yeah, you get in there, and you know what the the thing is, is that this is the first real, like, typical JRPG town that you're in. I'm reading your notes, and like you said, it's your first cute, your cute little first JRPG town. But it's not even the first town you've been in, because you've already been in Narsh. Uh, you've already been in uh, Figaro Castle, and that has a lot of town aspects, even though you really haven't been into a town. So now you're probably about an hour, hour and a half into the game, and this is like your really first town that strikes you as a town from Final Fantasy. So it takes a little while for you to get there. Uh, you can explore the town where you meet Shadow, and you can tell it's Shadow because it has this nice twangy guitar going in there. And you get to name the character again, of course. And, of course, he'll slit his mother's throat for a nickel, as they say, with a dog that will eat your face off. And for some reason, I don't know why Edgar knows who it is, but Edgar knows. it's, And he's an assassin mercenary thing, so it is what it is. But then you find out there's an old man who's outside that there's a person living over at Mount Colts and you're going to head over to Mount Colts to go see what you can find. 
Yeah, exactly right. Um, there's not a lot to do in South Figaro right now, aside from picking up some items or equipment if you need it, and meeting Shadow. One of two characters in this game that's got some stank on it mm-hmm. from Tetsuya Nomura. <laughs> so we're going, we're going he went crazy. He's not wearing any belts, so there's that. He's not. The the designs on Shadow and Setzer, I actually, I think they're they're good. I, I think they're very nice. I also think their characters, their, their, their plot is very nice too. Their background story is some of the better ones as well, which again, oh, yeah. it's not overly complicated or stupid. So Tetsuya Nomura is still within the realm of sanity at this point. So <laughs> we, we're, we're, we, he hasn't been infected by the heartless at this point. No, he has not. Mount Colts is just next door pretty much. So we're, we're heading over there. And as we're climbing Mount Colts, we, we can see somebody in the distance. Like they're always a few steps ahead of us. They're able to jump through mountains and etc. Whereas we have to kind of walk through. And eventually we do catch up to someone. We, we catch up to someone named Vargas and immediately, almost immediately we get into a fight with this person. What we learn is that Vargas trained under this person named uh, Duncan, Master Duncan, with somebody named Sabin. Mm-hmm. And the two of them were kind of like his prized pupils. Master Duncan was getting too old, and he said, you know, Vargas, you are going to be the successor. For some reason, Vargas misunderstood. I don't remember if they clarified this, but he misunderstood, and he thought Sabin was going to be his successor. And he resented that, of course. When he sees you, uh, Edgar specifically, he believes that you, like you're with Sabin because, uh, spoiler alert, they're brothers, and he attacks us. But what this does is it leads into a standoff because Sabin comes in and he kind of pushes us out of the way and he deals with Vargas. And this is kind of your introduction to Sabin's blitz techniques, uh, which are a direct homage to Street Fighter. Yes, uh, and if you don't have a manual and you're playing the Super Nintendo version, you might be a little fucked. Uh, just to put that there, because you got to know how to do you got to know how to do pummel. You could do all the other ones. Like, I think there's aura blast and suplex. He knows at this point, uh, in addition to pummel. So if you do aura blast or suplex, it will not end the battle. But as soon as you do pummel, that's when you know, Vargas goes, oh, wow, he taught you that. And that's kind of the indicator that he really meant you to be the successor. And that's when Sabin says well he was trying to tell you as well but you know you're you're just kind of really thick-headed and you know he he dies after one pummel which i don't think makes a ton of sense but it happens i kind of wish they did flesh that out a little bit they they yeah. kind of do in the world of ruin and not really though so there's not really much to spoil on that aspect but um like there's there's a story there going on with Sabin and Vargas and all, all like there's just a background story that's never really explained. And I, I think that's a missed opportunity. There's also some language here that may indicate that if either Woolsey or the original development team development team, because I can't remember what the original exact translation was, but it does indicate that there is a belief that Sabin may be a gay character because well, Tara, oh, like, really Tara says like, can you come with, with us and then Sabin says something to the effect of if you can handle a bear like me now does that necessarily mean that he's gay no however that is language within you know the gay community a bear is a I, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not a member of the gay community so I can't tell you exactly what it is I think it's just a big buff hairy burly man uh so that's that's a bear I believe but don't quote me because I don't, I may be wrong 
but that's essentially what Sabin is. And you don't see Sabin the entire game have any sort of romantic love interest. That's a good point. There is a there is a a comical scene a little down the road where uh, a, a bar patron mm-hmm. is flirting with Cyan like crazy, uh, and he's getting super bashful about it. We'll meet Cyan soon. Don't worry. Um, and you know, Cyan is like oh, to to Sabin says, "Aren't you aren't you phased by these mm-hmm. these these flirtatious attempts?" And Sabin's like, yeah. "No, I'm really not." <laughs> It's just my training. Um, so maybe. Uh, I mean, I... Also, the matter of the fact that they they sort of play on the fact that Edgar and Sabin are opposites. And of course, Edgar is a humongous womanizer, whereas Sabin, Sabin seems to have no interest in women. So it's it might be a very subtle thing. I don't know if it was intentional or not. It's definitely not explained, and I don't think it would have been in 1994. But it is something I think that's worth considering. Not saying it's canon. It's just it's possible. That's cool. I had not I had not heard of that before, but that is that is interesting. I'll be doing some Googling later tonight about that. So now that Sabin is with us, we finally make our way to the Returner's hideout, which is situated within a mountain past Mount Colts. Bannon, who is an older gentleman, is surprised to see that Tara is with us. He has heard that she's killed over 50 soldiers in mere minutes, which I don't think is true, but he's heard it. Uh, this upsets Tara. She doesn't remember anything. Well, she does. I'm going to take that back. She does kill a lot of soldiers, not 50. Uh, But Bannon spins like it's better. But Bannon spins into being about hope, saying that she is the one that can save us. It doesn't work. Everyone is still bummed out. So we all take naps. And when you wake up, you have to talk to everyone about why they joined the Returners to fight against the Empire. They don't want to force you to join, they say. Right. And of course, we do agree to join. Of course. Uh, Bannon sort of explains to everybody that the Empire attacked Narsh due to the Esper being there. Um, the Empire is very interested in studying uh, magic, magitech. They want this power for themselves. And what Bannon's worried about is that this will bring about the Second War of the Magi. We don't know much about that war yet, but all we hear about it is that it completely ruined humanity for a period of time. And we're now, we're just now rebuilding. That's why this is this uh, sort of steampunk-esque uh, technology setting is kind of important in, in the Final Fantasy sphere of things. But um, Bannon has a plan, and that is he he wants to try and talk with an Esper via Terra to possibly avoid this whole conflict. As he's explaining this, though, a soldier kind of barges in and falls dead on the ground uh, or gravely injured. I don't quite remember. South Figaro is under attack from the Empire. So Locke is going to go ahead and try and slow the enemy down in South Figaro while the rest of us take off uh, through like the back on a raft. And this raft, you're going to make a series of choices based on like which way you're going to go. Uh, I... Ultimately, this doesn't matter because you are going to get to the same spot. It's not like, uh, I don't think it's a maze. From what I could tell, the different directions just increase the encounter rate of various enemies. Uh, do you know much about this, Chris? What's t- it's technically a maze because I think there is a way that you are supposed to go. Um, oh, can you get locked in? Yes, you can. There's actually a way that you can lock in a rotation, like if you hold down... Uh, an a, the A button at a certain point and just like let it sit for like a day or two, you can come back and have level 50, 60 characters. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, there's okay. there's a way to manipulate it here. I wouldn't recommend it because that takes away a lot of the benefits that you get from your espers, which we'll, mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about later. But you could do that. So it's there is a definite path that you're supposed to take in this section. And I really don't like the raft section myself. I It's one of my least favorite parts of the game. Uh, it's still fun because your party composition, because I love having Bannon in there with his automatic heal ability. But uh, yes. it's it's definitely I'd like I don't like being locked into having a set path. And there's another part in the game where they do this, too, that also involves Sabin, but uh, not not my favorite part. I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. They do they do this a couple of times in yeah. this game, and it's just you're watching the you're watching the vehicle move, whatever you're on, move through and then random battle and then rinse and repeat. It, it is a little boring. The if you're bored here, you're eventually going to run into this octopus that is a comic relief slash creepo uh, mm-hmm. that might interest you. His name is Ultros, which is technically a Wolseyism. His original name was Orthros after a uh, two-headed Greek uh, mythological dog. Um, but Ted Wolsey coined Ultros, coined his one-liners, and that is so uh, much better. I, I yeah, it really is. Uh, Ultros is Ultros is so well known in the general Final Fantasy community. I can't imagine him being like. I'm not a huge fan of Ultros. I, I think at some points I'm like, oh my god, come on now. Um, but I cannot imagine him being like a serious character. No, uh, he's he's one of my favorite villains in this game and pretty much the series. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because he's he is that comic relief. He's a lot like Gilgamesh in Final Fantasy V in a sense. Where he just kind of fights you because he it starts out because he's just an octopus in the water who wants to fight you. And as the game goes on, it's more like, well, I mean, I'm just here for some reason. And that's what I do. I just fight you. And then it like almost respects you in, to a point, to a degree. And that's that's why I love Ultros. He's just he's such a goofy character, but he's such like he doesn't make sense within the world of Final Fantasy whatsoever. But somehow, some way, he still makes sense. And that's <laughs> when you as a like mid boss can do that. It's it's just something that makes something that makes a game special. And that's why I love Ultras. That is fair. That is fair. He is. He, there are sometimes there's a time coming up pretty soon that we'll talk about today um, that makes me laugh out loud every time I play it because of what Ultras does. He's I, maybe divisive is too strong of a word. There are some people that really don't like him. I, I think I'm closer to you. Like I like him. Uh, uh-huh. I don't love him, but uh, I, I think he's he's fun at times. <laughs> this particular fight, though, it can be pretty tough if you're uh, not at an appropriate level. The goal is to keep Bannon alive because if he dies, it's game over. Uh, Bannon has a prayer ability, um, just a, a full party heal. That um, when I fought him this past time on this playthrough, I kind of just had him do that every single turn just to ensure that nothing was going to go wrong. Ultras can do a lot of damage. And at least for my characters, he gets pretty close to one-shotting them. So being able to continually heal, super duper important. But after a bit of pummeling, he does escape underwater. And Sabin is pissed. Like, he's like, oh, you can't get away. So he jumps in after him. (laughs) And Edgar says something to the effect of like, oh, you know, that's my brother. You know, he'll be okay. And immediately... 
we see Sabin shoot out of the water, but he misses the <laughs> raft entirely. <laughs> and as we're floating downstream in the raft, we see Sabin floating in the opposite direction. <laughs> and it's it's pretty funny. Well, we're going to get a lot of this classic Final Fantasy humor yeah. in this episode. But this brings us to the first choose-your-own-adventure scenario. What do you think of these, man? I'm, I'm just going to say it. I, I think they're great. I think they're a lot of fun. I wish there was more of them. I wish they had done this more in this game, because I really think is that they only do this, what, one other time? I can't remember. This might be the only time that they really do it, this choose-your-own-adventure thing. I, I love it, because if you play it right and you can kind of play the order in the way you want to, you can have a really easy time or just a regular time, because it's not too difficult, no matter what order you choose. But it, it does provide a lot of information in whatever order you play it, and it's, I don't know, I, I just find it, Having that choice, almost an illusion of choice, because no matter what, nothing changes, but having that choice and, and be able to to play the characters in the order you want to does give a different perspective every single time you play it and how they relate to each other. Now, after, you know, Law of Diminishing Returns is not going to give you that perspective every single time, but like a second playthrough, like, oh, okay, this is how this connects, or maybe I missed this just because you're not thinking of how these things tie together the first time you're playing them. Yeah, I never, I never thought of it that way. One thing about these, though, is that two of them are significantly shorter than the third. Mm-hmm. So why don't, we, why don't we cross off the two short ones straight away? So the shortest one is Tara and company. Uh, Tara, Bannon, and Edgar. It's more rafting. <laughs> and it's not fun. Uh, no. IMO. We can't get into Narsh because there are guards there, and they won't let us through. So we have to go through the mines. Uh, the same mines that we escaped through earlier in the game. And uh, we eventually turn up in that one sympathizer's house uh, from, from the beginning. I don't remember his name. But I don't remember his name uh, one either. thing, that's pretty much it for this scenario. The only other thing that I had noted is that I didn't remember the music was so good here. Oh, I mean, first of all, is there any time? I think we talked about this last <laughs> episode too. Is there any time the music is not good in this game? Fair, fair. <laughs> but I know it has that saxophone going in, especially if you have the Pixel Remaster, which uh, there are some tracks, I think, that are done really, really well on account of having the Pixel Remaster done. And this is one of them. And uh, from understand, yeah. you are a saxophone player. So this is this is for you. <laughs> I, I have I have tooted a horn now and then. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super cool. It's really, really cool. But that is all that scenario, pretty much. The second short scenario is Locke. Uh, and Chris, I apologize. I wrote that a little out of order. Uh, mm-hmm. But as Locke had mentioned before, you're sort of milling around in Narsh trying to get out without being caught. This is a kind of fun little puzzle thing where you have to get into fights with merchants and guards and you steal the clothes off of their back. So Locke is going around saying how he's a world-class treasure hunter. If he can steal clothes off of the backs of merchants, man, you just embrace the thief thing at this point, dude. <laughs> uh, you can also steal the clothes off a uh, general, too. And you can walk around and become a general. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, embrace your thiefdom, man. You you want to be – you want to steal things? I get it. I get it. That's, what, that's in your blood. It's in your nature, and you're good at it. You can just – make people naked and they run away like they don't even fight back at that point they're just kind of like man you're good you're good i don't even know what to say i'm impressed i I can't blame him i wouldn't fight back either no he's just like encumbered but they're like i I don't care 
There's also a little, it's not really a puzzle. There's like a, a mini thing that you have to do to get to this uh, guard HQ. You have to give some cider to this old man that will not talk about anything other than cider if you ever talk to him. It's just, oh, you don't have cider? Get out of my face. Then you give him cider, and he's like, hey, you're cool. Let's go. Go ahead. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? I was just saying, uh, in quotations, cider. I'm oh. sure it's cider. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, knowing knowing Nintendo, um, maybe the Japanese was a little more explicit. Probably wine or sake or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, we do get to meet in a very important character here named Celeste. We meet her for the first time. We see her being sort of kept captive in this room with other guards, and we hear that they're talking about her execution coming up because she supposedly, as far as we know, is a traitor. She was a general for the Imperial Army, and she betrayed them somehow. Uh, she also says that Kefka has a plan to poison an entire city, uh, but they just kind of tell her to shut up and they don't you know, talk more about it. We can save her and bring her with us here. Um, this comes across like if you've never played before as Locke being the like sort of cliche main character, kind of good boy like Chrono from Chrono Trigger or something. Uh, in reality, Locke's anxieties over protecting women uh, are what's driving this. And we learn way more about that in the future. Um, with a, it's, And it's really nice. It's a moving backstory, I think. Yes. Yeah, this is a really important part. Uh, this this continues to show Locke's development, as you as you said, that he is always trying to play hero. He's very protective of women, in particular. Uh, and it's not so much like a lover boy thing, which again you find out later. It's just something that he feels like he has to do. It's part of the search for his own identity and meaning of life, which is really a big underlining theme in Final Fantasy VI. And I'm I'm sure we will talk about that much much later. But you really start to see those seeds planted here for Locke much better than I think any other character's arc this early on. You start to get some semblance of Celeste's too, but of course this is her introduction, so this isn't a continuing arc with her. It's just, here's Celeste. And it's interesting because a lot of people do consider Celeste to be the main character of this game, even more so than Terra, just because of what happens in the second half of the game. And this is how she's introduced, as opposed to being the first character you see, or even the second or the third. So having this sort of introduction where she's getting beaten up and tortured because she betrayed the Empire, which I don't think they ever tell you exactly what she does or why she's in that position, which is also strange. You think that at some point they would tell you that, but they don't. And I may have missed it. So if it's in there, I'd love to hear someone let, like, let me know, because I just I have no idea. But uh, this is a really interesting introduction for her. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting uh, development continuation for Locke, and I, I think this is why they're widely considered to be two of the best characters of this game. I think last episode I might have said, you know, oh, I think Terra is the main character. But as I'm replaying and as I'm getting farther into the story, I, I can see a convincing argument that might win me over about it being Celeste. Man, what a what a great character! I'm so excited to dig into <laughs> to dig to dig into more of these. It's going to be so good. Um, this scenario is over after we escape through the South Figaro Caves. We do have a brief boss fight, but it's pretty much solely to explain Celeste's main ability, Runic. Mm -hmm. What this does is you cast Runic, and if an enemy casts magic at you, Celeste will absorb it. This early on is phenomenal. It kind of gets 
I don't want to say obsolete, but you don't really need it once you're in late game. But for this boss fight specifically mm. and for this early game, it's really, really useful. It is. Uh, I think this is, going back to character development, this is another subtle drop because it's just her and Locke and, and Locke is not, he doesn't seem too keen to let her do it because it's Locke's job to protect her. And now Celeste has something that will protect both of them and she's protecting him. And this is a continuing theme in their relationship that develops uh, much into a later, more significant point that that happens. I don't think it happens while we're in this discussion quite yet. It's going to happen probably in the next episode. But this is this is part of Locke's arc and this is part of Celeste's arc, more so Locke's. But again, it's, it's a subtle delivery that if you're playing through the first time, you're not going to notice it. But on subsequent playthroughs, you're going to see it. Good catch, man. That's not something that I immediately caught, um, or at least not so much that I made a point to write it down. If you are playing for the first time, one thing that you will notice related to Celeste is that she's very much, uh, she's not the total opposite of Tara's character, but whereas Tara is more introspective and maybe meek, Celeste is very uh, independent and not afraid to give a, a, a tongue lashing or a sword lashing to anybody who stands in her way mm-hmm. it's uh she's a very cool character yeah she's a general where you know uh tara was a puppet tara was also born with the magic abilities and she also has magic which is something that you notice when you get her she can cast ice whereas tara can cast fire and when you get into a later point in the game you know they kind of explain that like whereas tara has this kind of really warm personality she has a she has a big heart Celeste is very cold. She is very cold-hearted and and very snappy, very assertive, like like a cold-hearted general. And it, it lines up. Now, she doesn't have magic naturally. She has magic because she was a science experiment, essentially. She was infused with with uh, magic or uh, with, with the power of the espers, or however they term it. Because uh, they had magicite, but they didn't know how it really worked. And again, that's for later. But... Uh, they, she was infused with the power of the espers as opposed to Terra, who naturally has the powers. Exactly so. Exactly so. For now, uh, we're going to go to our last and longest scenario, Sabin. Um, <laughs> he gets washed up onto the world map. And this is where we pick up Shadow, the, the ninja that we met sort of before. Um, I, I can't remember if this is the proper introduction, but he says at some point that, you know, he is a ninja or an assassin, so he'll leave you at a moment's notice, uh, which which he happens can. a lot. He can. Shadow will. He just leaves half the time throughout this game, and you don't have to get him either. It's not mm-hmm. mandatory. You you have to you have to choose to. So you could go this entire time with Seven alone. So right. It's nice to have Shadow along, certainly, especially at this point of the game if you're under leveled. But it's not required. It is really nice. Um, you can buy shuriukens here for very cheap, and Shadow can throw those. And man, do they do a lot of damage early game. Like, they can one-shot a lot. And uh, I did that because <laughs> it was, you know, it's just just how it needs to be. Why wouldn't you? So Shadow, Shadow is going to help us get to Narsh through a town called Doma, which the Empire has already begun their descent upon. Uh, we end up at their camp, and we meet General Leo. Uh, well, we don't meet him. We're kind of eavesdropping. We're lurking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're lurking. And by all accounts, General Leo is a really decent man. Like, he cares about 
human life. He wants to treat his soldiers and the enemy soldiers with respect. He says something along the lines of like, you know, they might be the enemy, but they're still human. Mm-hmm. And he's essentially being set up as a complete foil to Kefka, who does not care about human life. And what does he say at some point later? Oppose rhymes with dispose for a reason. Uh, <laughs> I don't oh, know wow, if that's in the that. SNES. I do not that's, remember that. Yeah, it's in the Pixel remaster. It makes sense. We briefly also get to play as Cyan here, a samurai fighting for Doma. I, I'm i kind of undecided on how I feel about Cyan just as a character, uh, both like as a playable character and a, as, a, as a story, diegetic character. Um, but we learn a lot about him pretty soon. So, uh, really soon actually. <laughs> so I'll maybe hold off on, on those, those comments. Uh, but he is fighting for Doma. As we're hiding and eavesdropping, we learn that Kefka, uh, explicitly against General Leo's wishes to be humane, is planning to use poison on the Domans. Um, General Leo was summoned by Emperor Gestal. He has to go. He's gone. Kefka's in charge now. Kefka wants blood. We try to stop Kefka. We jump out and we say, you know, you're done, pal. But this turns into a... (laughs) It turns into a Scooby-Doo chase where we get into a fight with him. We hit him once and Kefka just goes, ouch. And then he like runs away. (laughs) This it's so goofy. This is, I mean, this is what's great about Kefka. This is why I think a lot of people love Kefka. He does something that's incredibly evil uh, by poisoning this river. And we're about to get to it after the scene where you're chasing Kefka around. It's a Scooby-Doo chase. But, like, if you watch professional wrestling, and I do, this is, like, how to make a really good heel, is they do something terrible that is just awful that you all hate, and then when it's finally time to confront the heel, they're running away and trying to do everything they can to avoid conflict. It's just like, oh, I don't have time for this. I'm, I was like, wait, wait, you expect, you expect me to be a waiter? Do I look like a waiter, is what he says, as he runs off, and he keeps <laughs> like, I don't have time for this, and just keeps running away from you. Uh, you find out later he could probably just mop, just mop the floor with you, like, easily. But he doesn't. He's just very irritated, and he's running away. So he's he's playing this very typical, almost wrestling heel stereotype, which is great at drawing heat. So you're already annoyed by this dude. And by the way, at this point, you don't, you don't know the nature of the hierarchy of his villainy. You just know that he is yes. a secondary character as far as you know at this point. So, like, the way they're building them up is is actually brilliant. And, like, I this is, again, like, all these seeds are starting to be planted here for, for the overall character arcs and where things go. And Kefka is just, this is a slam dunk on further developing him from the introduction you got over at Figaro Castle. Yeah, man, Kefka, Kefka's character, a lot of folks will associate Sephiroth or maybe even Seymour with, like, the Final Fantasy villain. Kefka, I mean, they wouldn't exist without Kefka. Certainly Sephiroth wouldn't exist without Kefka. And we're about to see something incredibly malicious here with with him. Up until now, I mean, he's dressed like a clown. I mean, we haven't really explicitly said that, but he's wearing clown makeup, clown shoes, like the whole nine. He's shouting off these one-liners, these gags. Do I look like a waiter? Uh, Oppose rhymes with dispose, son of a submariner, like all Mm -hmm. of these things. He's a goofball 
But uh, it's here that we see Kefka go over, and you know, after we chase him enough times, he pours this bottle of poison into the Doman River, and we see it turning purple. And one by one, the townspeople just start dropping. Everybody is dying. Uh, even the king, like men, women, children, even the king has died. And, you know, I'm not a parent, but uh, one thing that Cyan happens upon is his family, his, uh, his, his wife and his young son. And they're dead. I, his son might die in his arms, but they're both, they're dead. I, I can't imagine. It's, we're going to be talking about this in this episode. This isn't the scene that gets me. There is a scene related to this scene that utterly destroys me, especially now yeah. as an adult having children. This, I mean, this is understandable because he, he rages and he, you know, busts out of the castle and he starts like killing everyone. Uh, well, he doesn't, I mean, he already did that in the castle to defend the castle, but like he, he goes and joins uh, Sabin and maybe Shadow in the in the fort and starts killing everyone there. But yeah, it's just you see his son die. Now the, the thing that kind of takes me back from this is like as soon as the poison's in there, now everyone dies immediately and somehow Cyan and his one buddy were the only two people in the entire castle that didn't drink the water. Okay. A tad bit unrealistic. But it is. It does show the maliciousness and villainy that that Kefka is, and just his flippant manner and how he handles it. Um, and that you need scenes like this to establish Kefka for what he would be down the line. Because again, as I as I remind you, uh, dear listener, that Kefka is not the main villain at this point. He is the secondary villain. Emperor Gastal is the main villain. He's just he's just a clown who's doing bad things. So again, tremendous build up, uh, tremendous scene in establishing that build up. And really gets a key motivator in what your party is about to do, and uh, which why you would want Cyan to join you, or why he would join you more so. You mentioned that Cyan loses it briefly and is just fighting everybody outside. Um, we do join him, like you said, Shadow. If you picked him up, but definitely uh, at least Sabin. Uh, at one point, you even hijack some mechs, uh, awesome. which is play, played off for comedy because Cyan just can't control it at all, and he just mows down enemy soldiers it's pretty good um but you're able to get out the only way to narsh from here is through the phantom forest and this is where we come across uh something you may have heard of or seen even if you haven't played this game the phantom train mm -hmm. this is a train that takes the departed souls to the afterlife and guess what buddy we can't get off which is good because that means shadow can't leave your party either so haha -ha, you're stuck <laughs> with us <laughs> for the time being, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never like, I, I think I think about this scene too hard every time I get to it. It's like I'm never sure if it's like, like this is reality or if it's like supernatural or I, I really don't know. I think I think too too hard about it. I don't think they were thinking too hard about it when they when they made this. <laughs> Here's the ghost train. If you don't get off the ghost train, you're going to be a ghost, and that's all they're really thinking about it. Because yeah, you're eating meals. On, on the train that they're served to you, like the ghosts are. Uh, what I don't understand is why some of the ghosts are friendly, because a ghost can join your party. But yeah, the re some ghosts sell you items. Uh, like I just said, a ghost will serve you a five-course meal. And Cyan doesn't eat it because he thinks it's a little weird. But 
Sabin doesn't care. He's a big burly dude who's just got back from the gym every five seconds and he just wants to eat whatever. So yeah, he'll eat whatever the ghost puts in front of his face. Even though apparently he eats enough for Cyan to recover his hit points too. So go figure. <laughs> it's so funny, dude. Sabin uh, will like sit down at the table and start pounding it like he's in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. And, you know, the ghosts will sell you items and they'll be like, hey, hey, buy it up. You can't take it with you. And like uh, you meet somebody named Siegfried who is like, I am this ultimate warrior. Try me if you dare. And he hits you for like three hit points. Yeah. And then you defeat him. He's it's there's so much goofy humor inserted into the more serious plot beats that, you know, Final Fantasy 13, 15, 12 to an extent, they just didn't have this. And, and it's something I miss. I miss it a lot. I really wish Siegfried was was better explained too. Is that a callback to a to a previous Final Fantasy? No. Like okay, it's I, there's a lot of theories about what they were trying to do with him. I just think he's a character they put in the game and forgot about. <laughs> it's fair, fair. Uh, you see these sometimes. Like it happened in Lunar Eternal Blue as well. There's this like ninja character that you meet at a waterfall or something once you get out of a mansion, and they never explain what the character is. I think Siegfried's kind of like that. Like they're building up to something with them, maybe get you a special item or weapon or something down the line. And I can't, is this like the only place you fight him? I think the other place you fight him is in the, I think you might be able to fight him in the Coliseum in the world of room, but I'm not sure. But I think this is the only time you really have any interaction with him. I think there might be a cave later, but I'm not, but again, they don't, they don't flesh anything out. I really never engaged with that Coliseum. Uh, so I, I'm not sure. I th- see, I thought it was just a gag, like a callback to like Final Fantasy V or something. No, because that's Go-Go. Oh, okay. Okay. At any rate, you are right. Uh, ghosts are all around this train. Some of them are friendly to you. Some of them will attack you if you talk to them. One of them will join your party. It's kind of funny. Um, but your goal is to get all the way to the left side of the train because you want to stop this thing, right? So when you do finally manage to do that, you pull the right levers and you go to the very front and shut off this hidden switch. The train will talk to you and it basically just says, I'm not stopping. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you fight the train and this has become a supremely memeable moment in Final Fantasy history with uh, Sabin. You can do your suplex move and you suplex the train. You lift it off of the screen and suplex it into the ground. It's just so goofy and I, I love it. Did you do that the first time you played the game? Because I did not. Uh, I I had read about it before I started oh. playing the game. Um, okay. And I, I, like, you know, as I was starting the game up, I was like, you know, just on the Final Fantasy subreddit. And I think somebody mentioned it, so I had heard about it. See, when I when I first played this game, I loved doing the Aura Bolt. I didn't like the suplex or the pummel. I just did Aura Bolt. So I never suplexed the train. I even think, like, my imagination, because I played this when I was what, nine, ten, was not so limited that I didn't see it as something that couldn't happen. Like, oh, Sabin suplexing a train. Okay. So I, like, I see it now. It's like, oh, it's awesome. He's suplexing a train. It's like, yeah, shit like that happened in video games all the time back then. Like, I don't know. What do you want me to tell you? But um, I'm glad it became a meme and I'm glad that people love it, but I'll I'll enjoy the memory. I'll, I'll join in on that just because people seem to be entertained by it, but I don't know. I always used Orabolt and thought it was more useful, and I didn't particularly find it funny because I didn't know if it was doing more damage or not. I just wanted to kill the damn thing. So that was <laughs> that was my position on it. 
Well, the pro tip, if you want to kill the damn thing as quickly as possible, is to use a phoenix down. This is one of those classic square moments where the train has zombie. It is zombie affected. Uh, It doesn't tell you that, though. And if you use healing items on it, it hurts it. So a phoenix down will one hit KO it pretty quickly. If you make it a real train, what does that do to the ghosts? Wait, say that again. If you make it a real train because you're casting, you know, you throw a phoenix down on it. So you're reviving the train. What happens to all the ghosts? I guess I never put two and two together. I, I just always assumed the Phoenix down would just negate the. Jeez, Chris, I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just assumed that it like banished them to the afterlife or something. I mean, it's taking it to the afterlife. So now you don't have a train because it's alive. <laughs> now it's on real tracks. This is they don't they don't prepare you for this in school. What am I supposed to do here? I don't know. The world is infused with ghosts. It's Ghostbusters. Zool's Zool's being revived. <laughs> this is this is why they added Yuna into Final Fantasy X. They, they there are too many possibilities here. <laughs> that that uh, proves the world are worlds are connected right there. Final Fantasy X <laughs> and and Final Fantasy VI because after you defeat the train, I mean, someone's got to get rid of all these dead bodies. I mean, Christ. Well, not him. It's Yuna. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Insert insert the uh, it's always sunny Pepe Silvia crazy scene here. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we we can't stay in this uh, jovial mood forever. Uh, the train does agree to let us off. He's like, OK, you beat me, but I've got something I got to do. It makes a quick stop uh, to pick up passengers that have passed on to take them to the afterlife. This includes Cyan's wife and his son. Uh, and this is, I'm, I'm assuming this is the scene that you had alluded to, Chris. Um, yeah. The train starts to move and Cyan chases after them on the platform. Um, and they're talking, they're saying, you know, I'll always love you. Like, oh, I'll train real hard, dad, to protect mom. Um, and the platform runs out. He can't chase them anymore. And with with one final whistle, it... Uh, fades into the distance and cyan is just kind of left there in silence and no music plays no music plays yeah when i was younger and i think this is just it can be assumed this the scene didn't mean much to me it was just a scene uh Mm -hmm. you know that his family died this is the phantom train it's taking his deceased family off and you're like oh wow that sucks for cyan okay let's let's move on and get on to the next part uh as a as an adult, though, as someone with with two sons of my own, I I don't know. I mean, it is, I guess it's just a natural thing, but like it just the thought gets into your head. Like, how would you react if your family had just died and they're saying goodbye to you and you can't join them? Like, that's it. Like, is this is something you would relish? Is this something that would crush you? And I think that's. This is the first part in the game that that makes and there's several parts in this game that make me feel this way. You can call me softy. I don't give a shit. But like make my eyes just like kind of start welling and maybe get get those tears start working because this is incredibly powerful and emotional scene and so much better than probably as any right to be for the era. I don't think people think of the Super Nintendo era as having emotionally powerful scenes like this, at least to this extent. Like not not with the level and maturity that this delivers it at, because it's not even like overly mocking 
uh, situation. It's not so serious. It's rubbing your face in it. I mean, it kind of is, but it delivers it perfectly. And and this is where, you know, this is like, in my mind, like when I talk about Final Fantasy VI, this is where I start to think that Final Fantasy VI has the most adult narrative in the entire series because it speaks to those themes far more eloquently than I think any other game truly does. And this is the first example of that. We get trappings of it in future games. Like we mentioned 10, there's there's a prevailing theme of, of death in that game. That That's more so from a religious uh, stint uh, what, what with the church in that game. With Final Fantasy IX, we obviously get Vivi's arc. Um, and that's, I mean, if I had to pick a number two, I, I would put that right behind six. But you're right. This It's incredible what they were able to do with so little, right? I mean, gra- I love this era of graphics. Please don't get me wrong. But when you're working with limited graphics, um, that puts a constraint on you to work harder in other areas. And, you know, when and when we think back of this stuff, right, like when we remember these games that we play, we're, we might remember this scene, but we're always doing a little extra work mentally, right? We, we'll picture the characters running instead of, you know, their sprites moving. We might picture the battles taking out, uh, taking place more realistically, things like that. So for them to be able to pack such an emotional punch into this scene, it's it's perfect. Had they added a soliloquy by Cyan, I don't think it would have landed. Mm-hmm. Had they added music, I don't think it would have landed. What they did was, it, it's it's so it's so impactful. It's so good. I'm with you, dude. Like, I, I don't don't talk to me about softy, man. Like, I <laughs> I cry on the podcast all the time, practically. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this scene, it's. The only thing I wish is that I wish they would have had the time to expand it and let Cyan live in that mindset more. Because it is a video game, we do kind of move past that somewhat quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only thing. Like if this were a novel, like Lord of the Rings, we would have that. But but then it wouldn't be the same because we wouldn't have the visuals. So And they they do address it later. Like you do find out that he never completely moves on. At least until later. Uh, he, it's still within his mind. It, it doesn't truly escape him. Um, another subtle thing, very subtle thing, uh, that I, I don't really hear discussed. I don't think I've ever heard it discussed. Is that notice how Shadow, who's supposed to be this really dark assassin, kind of has a moment of understanding. Which is important, but it's never conveyed to the player, even throughout the game of Final Fantasy VI, why that would be important through Shadow. is You kind of have to find it out in very secretive ways. But that is a... It's a very important point for Shadow if you're paying attention. And it's not... Again, it's not something you'll you'll naturally catch. This takes some, some interest, some perspective and some time away from the game to really pay attention to what Shadow's saying, why he's saying, hey, give him some time. Yeah, and that... That payoff is really strong, too, I think. I, I'm with you. You said earlier that Shadow is a great character. 100% agreed. Um, we just don't get to learn that until much later, unfortunately. Or even naturally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. It's all optional. Yep. But I'm, I'm going to move us along just a little bit, if that's all right. Yeah. You uh, you do, once we're done um, in this really touching scene, you make it to this cliff 
that's surrounded by waterfalls. Uh, the Velt, this area called the Velt, lies ahead with a town called Mobley's right beyond it. Um, so naturally, we just dive off the cliff. <laughs> uh, if Shadow's with you, he bails. Uh, but you and uh, Sabin and Cyan jump off the cliff, and your little sprite floats down, and you wash ashore. And we're in the Velt. And, I mean, as soon as you get into the Velt, you get this really percussive, uh, inspired, drum-heavy track from Uematsu um, that's also got a lot of, like, chromatic uh, uh, modal mixtures. It's it's playing right now, I'm sure, if I'm doing my job. Um, it's really good. I mean, I don't want to say that about every single uh, track that we find, but man, it's tough. I, I You know, track. I read somewhere, uh, and I, I apologize for interrupting on a tangent again, but I read somewhere that Uematsu thought that this was going to be it for him, video game music-wise. Oh, wow. Like, he was getting a little tired of it, so he put 100% into this. He was like, this is going to be my video game magnum opus. And then, of course, you know, he came back for seven and did it again and came back for eight and nine and ten and did it all again. And ah, that dude is a legend. I, I was just saying, you didn't interrupt me. It's all good. I was just providing a background uh, commentary of, I hate that track. Really? I hate the Velt. I can't stand it. I'm, I don't like the area, but you don't like the music, huh? Okay. Well, that goes part and parcel. Because yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. if you're trying to level up Gao... You are going to hear a lot of the Velt. A lot of the Velt. So I can't stand that track. Let's talk about Gal for a second. Yeah. Um, when we wash up on shore, we run into this green-haired boy. We learn that his name is Gal. He is a feral child. I think that's actually his class uh, in the game. Yeah. He speaks in broken English or Japanese, depending on what you're playing. Uh, he tells you to leave. So what you've got to do to move on is you've got to give him dried meat in battle, like use it like an item on him. He'll pop up after battles every so often, and that's when you have to do it. That's when he lets his guard down, and man, does he antagonize Sabin something fierce, and Sabin just can't take it. Like he gets so annoyed at the little kid. I love it. I love it. It's so funny. They do this little dance like with their sprites on the on the overworld. <laughs> it's it's so good. I, I love it. Uh, but talking about Gao, you had mentioned leveling Gao up. I will start saying this by saying I don't like using Gao. I will not use him if at all possible. Gao's whole spiel is he's basically a blue mage with extra work. He's a blue mage berserker. Oh, is that is that the technical combo? Oh, I have no idea what the technical combo is, but like you can't control him, so that's the berserker class. And uh, he has a berserker. I mean, the blue mage fact that he can use monsters' abilities. In fact, like. Ex- exclusive to that monster in many ways if you want to go down the saga route you could say that he's borrowing from the he's like a berserker monster class from saga because that is a class that you can do in in saga frontier where if every time you eat monster meat or not saga well all the entire saga series especially like final fantasy legend one through three if you have a monster and you eat monster meat then you turn into a different type of monster and you gain that monster's abilities. And you can also keep some of the previous abilities you learned from being different types of monsters. So I think it may have been inspired by Saga. I'm not sure. I like I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. But if you're asking me like what he's kind of like, he's he's a berserker in the sense that once you choose what monster he's going to be, he's going, he's uncontrollable and he acts upon the the abilities of that monster, which can be great or can be absolutely miserable. It depends. You got to know them, and there's too many of them. 
And one key thing to leveling up Gao too that you sort of alluded to when you said you hate this area is and and correct me if I'm wrong, you you can only level Gao up on the Velt because he's got this ability called leap and what he'll do is he'll leap out of battle. And when he's leaping, he will learn the abilities of all the monsters on the field as well as when he comes back. Mm-hmm. And the way it's explained in game, and I, I will be perfectly honest and say I haven't tried outside of the Velt, but the way it's explained in game makes it seem like you can only do that in this area, That's which right. means you are going to be hearing this looping, like four bars, <laughs> the whole, whole, whole way through, and that sucks. And you gain no experience on the Velt either, only gold. That's oh my gosh, that's right. I forgot about that. So during this time, if you are underleveled and you're about to go into a hard part of this game, uh, it's not extremely hard, but it's it's pretty difficult and you can't level up your characters. So whatever level your characters at when you get to the Velt, whatever la- uh, level Cyan and Sabin are when you get there, that's their level because you're not getting anything beyond that. Unless you go to the cave, there's a cave in the south. We'll get there. But um, I don't think you can take Gao with you initially until you, you get to a certain point. But uh, I don't think we've talked about how to get Gao yet in Mobley, so I'll let you. I'll let you cover that. Uh, Mobley's is where you you learn about the the dried meat business, um, mm-hmm. and that's that's how you get Gao on the Velt. That's what kind of spawns that whole conversation. Once you do that, once you get him, he says that he wants to give you treasure, but he doesn't have it with him. So he wants to take you somewhere to get this treasure, and he takes you to this cave, a uh, crescent cave. Uh, we have heard of Crescent Cave, I believe, in Mobley's because there's a current that will take you all the way to this nearby town called uh, Nikia. And when we're inside of the cave, you know, Gal finds like a potion. He's like, "Oh, that's not it. That's that's not the treasure." Uh, he like tricks sign or a uh, tricks Sabin and uh, and takes his coin purse and throws it down <laughs> down the well, pisses him off. Uh, but eventually, we find this diver's helmet. That's Gal's treasure, this shiny diver's home. Shiny, shiny. Well, it looks probably pretty musty if it's sitting in the cave. But, um, And through the logic of video games, with one diving helmet, all three of them can dive off of Crescent Cave into the current, and we're, uh, we're, we'll be whisked to Nikia. This is another, it's a scene similar to the rafts. When we're underwater, we're going to be seeing us go through the current, random battle, current random battle but that's how we got to do it uh also important that it, it kind of this is even worse than the raft one because if you pick the right direction you'll get some treasure if you don't pick the right direction you will not get any treasure so you have to know which directions you need to go yes. i hate that um i do like the scenes with the helmet though and how he goes shiny shiny it's my shiny and how they refer to Locke. it's like <laughs> oh Locke will love that and then you get the you get the mr thou scene yeah <laughs> which is fantastic yeah. Uh, so you just took the piss out of Sabin on the Velt with the dancing and making him go crazy, and now you're in now you're in Crescent Cave, and now Gao's making, you know, uh, Cyan go nuts, and now Sabin's getting the kick out of it, and he's laughing his ass off. I, I love this camaraderie here. I love these scenes. It's such a joy. It's so it's so much fun, especially after having such an emotionally, uh, like dampening scene, like emotionally heavy, and just to kind of lighten up the mood with all these is just I love it. And it, it sucks that, like, the underwater portion is just, I hate it. <laughs> I can't stand it because it's on rails. And like I said, you make the wrong decision. You're going to miss out on treasure. 
And I can't remember which way I'm supposed to go every single time. So unfortunately, I have to bust out a guide at this point. Be like, I just want to make sure I don't miss anything. But yeah, once it's over, yeah, it, you're in Nakia and things get a lot more interesting. There, There's a ferry in Nakia. Um, and that's what we're taking to get back to South Figaro. We can explore the town. There's not a ton there. This is where you get the funny uh, flirting scene with uh, with some dancer at a bar with Cyan. Um <laughs> I think she comes up to him and like gestures to her chest and says, I call this one Humpty and this one Dumpty. And that really freaks him out. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think that was in the Woolsey translation. <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's it's been a couple years since I've played the SNES. I'm I'm going off of the Pixel remaster. It's it's very funny. Um, and again, Sabin is not phased at all. He doesn't care. So who knows? Maybe. Hint, hint. But this is the end of our last scenario. It's the longest one by far. But now, once we take that ferry back to South Figaro, well, we have to get back to Narsh after that. But um, once we're back in Narsh, everybody's together again. And this is where we start to learn more about what is going on specifically. Uh, Emperor Gestal, he is racing to get more Magitek weapons. And like Bannon said before, we need to figure out a plan to stop him to avoid another War of the Magi. Uh, Narsh desperately wants to remain neutral in an effort to not get involved and <laughs> that that brings up this whole theme of like you know indecisiveness i mean the rush song you know if you, you you've decided not to choose you've still made a choice yep. it's this is all very real stuff and i i appreciate it very much um Locke and celeste come back at this point to say like hey the empire and kefka they are coming here now Cyan is not thrilled because he knows Celis. He knows that she is a general, former general. Uh, but he he is pissed that she's here and that Terra was a formal imperial soldier. For a moment, it looks like a fight's going to break out. But we don't have time because we've got to prepare for a fight now because they are coming. So once they establish the fact that the Empire is here and you need to know she get your ass in gear so no one, you know, the Narsh doesn't get obliterated and you have to protect this Esper because the Empire is also after the Esper, which I always call Tritark. I don't know what they call it now. Is it like, Mig is it like Midgar Serpent? It's not Midgar Serpent. It's something. Uh, what is it called now? Do you know? I don't remember seeing a name for it in at least in the Pixel remaster. It has a different name in the Pixel Remaster. I just can't remember what it is. But any, anyway, they're protecting this Esper uh, and protecting the town. And this is where you get a little bit of uh, back and forth character exposition, some little bit further development. Kind of the weakest in the game, I think, because it's very rapidly delivered as they're moving their way up the mountain. You have Celeste interacting with... Uh, Tara. In fact, it's Celeste interacting with everybody. Celeste is in each one of these scenes and talking to these various characters. I think Edgar tries to hit of her, hit on her because, of course, he does. Um, and you just just hear more what people think about Celeste and her being a general in the Empire and whether or not they could trust her. Because, of course, why would they? She just came from the Empire, and they got to make sure they have an ally. So you get up to the top of the mountain, and you have to protect the Esper from Kefka. 
And this is where you get another one of your party uh, party swaps, party splits. And they give you an opportunity to equip your characters. So again, if you planned out the order of your scenarios correctly, you should have enough money to have <laughs> bought plenty of equipment for your characters back in Mobliz. So hopefully you did that. And you equip all your characters out properly and load out the parties as you want them to be. And then you will start encountering all these like wolf party people, I think. No, generals. Maybe some wolves. I can't remember. But it's uh, they split up and yeah, you got quite a quite an interesting fight. And if your party makeup isn't good, yours could be really difficult or you can get some valuable experience points and all that good jazz. But yeah, you get to the end and you fight this guy on a horse who's very powerful. And once you beat him, it's time to have a real confrontation with Kefka. And Kefka is still very much pulling his punches here. Uh, we don't know that yet, but this fight against Kefka, it's really not supremely difficult. And after a while of wailing on him, again, he flees. Um, and once he does that, we all go back to check on the Esper because we want to make sure that they didn't get it. It is okay. But when we get there, Tara begins to have another reaction to it, just like she did at the beginning of the game. They're able to kind of talk a little. Uh, we we can't hear the Esper side, but it's clear that they're communicating. Um, and as this is going on, this sort of energy kind of radiates through Terra, and it like pushes the rest of our party members kind of onto the ground. Uh, like Gao is hanging off of the side of the cliff, and it's here. Like, and, and I'm trying to put myself into the shoes of somebody playing this in the '90s on the SNES for the first time when this was contemporary. Terra transforms here into an Esper, completely pink, uh, no clothes, long hair. Um, it's like they stopped a magical girl transformation halfway through. It looks really cool. She lets out a whale, and then uh, she takes off, and we follow her as, as the camera. As she flies across the world map, and like the Mode 7 graphics are just on full display here, I think now this is like we see this and it's like, oh, OK, like, yeah, sure. Of course, I, I can imagine when this came out, this was nuts. I can't remember how impressed I was because of at this point, it's almost 30 years. But I, I do remember just the whale itself, like the way the game screamed at you, the way that she transformed. That was like, oh, wow, like. What's going on? I don't understand uh, what's happening right now. And why is this happening? One of my party members like what's going on? Like you don't there's a lot that's not explained to you. You know that she has a special ability to communicate with the espers. But like, why would she turn into this? Why would she turn into whatever she just turned into? You have no idea what she turned into. And then like it just shows her flying around in mode seven all over the place. And like, what's going on? So it is one of those scenes that really does take you by surprise. And at least back then, I'm sure now, like, it's different. 16-bit graphics, like, no one's like, whoa! It's just like, oh, okay. But, yeah, back then, it's like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I got to figure this out. This is wild. This is a new development, and I don't know where this is going. And it definitely kept me invested. Yeah, and happening to one of our more mild-mannered characters, too. Mm -hmm. It's, man, to 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 be a kid and, and replay this at the time... Um, I can imagine that'd be great. That scene ends. Uh, it sort of fades to black. And when it, when it fades back in, we are waking up as Locke uh, inside. And Celeste comes in to check on us. Edgar comes in to check on us. 
they just sort of explain the situation. Terra transformed. We've got to find her. So once again, we're going to split into two parties. One is going to stay behind. The other is going to go to Figaro Castle to get to the western side of the continent because that's where people saw Terra head. Um, this is another cool part of this game that I don't remember if we talked about, but just to say it, um, you know, this is very ensemble focused. And because of that, you can take pretty much whoever, wherever, almost all the time, and you're not going to miss any key dialogue. A lot, of the, a lot of the times, the dialogue boxes will come up without a name attached to it, um, but the indication of who's speaking will be like whoever's moving on the screen. And, you know, they do that so you can take who you like and you're not missing any story. Now, you could take certain people to certain places and you'll get extra little, like, winks and nods and dialogues. Um, but that's more character-based than story-based. And I think that's so cool. I really mm -hmm. love that. Like, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, one other thing about the castle, too, is you can buy tools for Edgar here. Uh, you're going to want to do that because, yes. <laughs> because they're very, very strong. Overpowered. Unbalanced. Yeah, oh, completely. And, in fact, you want to... I would heavily, heavily advise that you bring... At least whatever your party makeup is, bring Edgar and Simon for this, at least for the, the way to uh, we're going to be going next. Uh, leave. I, I typically leave Cyan and Gal behind personally, uh, just because I like Locke. I like Celeste. And you get little story bits that that Rick was alluding to uh, regarding the brothers Figaro, which is, I think, very important to their character development. And if you miss out on that, you're doing yourself a disservice. So make sure that they are in that party. 100%. Or you're going to miss a lot. Yeah, 100%. Um, this next bit that I have written down, can you miss this if you don't take one of the brothers? Yeah, you'll miss it if you if they're both not in your party. Oh, man. That is a bummer. Yes. So, I don't know how you're going to edit this, but I'll put this. Me, me and Rick were just talking about a scene that happens when you leave Narsh, you go to Figaro Castle. And we all know that Figaro, or Figaro can like transport itself into the sand you don't know where it goes uh when you when you first saw it but now you learn that it is a method of transportation into the desert on the other side of the mountains that are to your northwest while you're transiting i don't think it gets stuck here i don't think it gets stuck but you do have an event i don't know if it happens while you're transiting or not either regardless if you bring both of the brothers you learn the backstory of how Edgar ascended to the throne and why Sabin is out in the wilderness. And this even gets further explained here in a little bit too, uh, even more of that backstory. But again, you have to bring one of the brothers with you in order to get these pieces of information, which is really cool or really sucks, depending on your perspective on how you view this, because th that's, this is great stuff. This really develops the characters and no other character at this point has these developments. And I almost think they should have been, there should have been a lore reason that you had to take them with you because if they are not with you at this, at this, at this part in the story, you're not going to get those very, very, very important bits of character development and information, but they are there and they're great. And, uh, do you, I'll let you, I'll let you talk about what exactly that scene is. Cause you do have it here in the notes. I, I'm with you 100%. I, I would hate to miss this. Oh, I yeah. do think it's a neat concept, but oh, this is a really cool scene. Um, 
Sabin is walking around the castle, and he says, you know, nothing has been the same here since... I can't remember his verbiage. Since back then, since before. Um, and what happened was the the king died. Uh, we, we see this flashback. Sabin did not take this well. Um, he was upset that everybody just wanted to move on and find a new king. Nobody was getting upset about this except for him. He, I, it seems like he felt the emotions far stronger than most people, or at the very least didn't have the uh, the wherewithal to, to keep his head on straight in the moment. Right. So he swears vengeance on the Empire, and he... You know, he he doesn't. He asks Edgar to leave. He's like, "Let's just get out of here. Let's leave the kingdom." And Edgar's like, "You know, can't do that. We promised Dad we'd look after it. What would they do without us?" So Edgar takes out a coin, and he says, "You know, let's let's just flip a coin. If if you win, you get to do what you want to do. If I win, I'll do what I want to do." And the result is that Sabin wins, and Sabin leaves. That's why he went off to train with Master Duncan. And Edgar stayed behind to be king. There's a little more to this that we learn later, uh, but this mm-hmm. is what's explained to us now. And then, fast forward to the present, the two brothers are sitting side by side on the thrones, sort of just reminiscing about how things went down. Um, there, there are some funny, I don't know if they're Wolseyisms, but there are like, wise cracks within mm-hmm. here, wordplay. Um, but it's a really, really touching scene. I cannot stop thinking about how, like, they didn't have visually. They didn't have a load to work with, but they were so good at packing emotional content into here. I, man, I, I, I really hope folks play this. <laughs> I really <laughs> hope folks don't just start at Final Fantasy VII. Right. I think the scene also it it displays that aspect of how different these brothers are, like how they're almost diametrically opposed, yes. where. Sabin is is very 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 emotional, whereas uh, Edgar is more reserved, and he Edgar feels like he has a role he has to play he has to he has to lead the kingdom, whereas Sabin is like I want to be free I want to be free of these these shackles that is the, the the royal lifestyle and having to have the fate of the entire kingdom rest on our shoulders especially because they thought the empire poisoned their father. And a lot of people are like, well, you can't prove that. Like, yes, they did. Yes, but they were technically aligned with the Empire, so they couldn't necessarily say it. And that's what Sabin wanted to do, is he wanted to lash out against who was technically the ally, their allies, essentially keeping them alive. And Edgar was like, well, we, we kind of have to maintain this weird neutrality that we have in order to have our people survive. And that was kind of the attitude that they had. Now, which one is right? Which one is wrong? Should they have struck out against the Empire? Because ultimately, that's what they did anyway, right? Uh, but it does show how they how they engage in situations and how they view the world. And why, even though they are twins, they are opposites in almost every way. Yeah, thank you for clarifying about the Empire supposedly poisoning the king. That That is a crucial bit of information. And man, you, you really are right. The character development in this scene is is really really beautiful and man listeners if you are playing along with us and and you didn't take Sabin and Edgar at least look it up on YouTube like do yourself do yourself a kindness and and check that out it's very good so we get done with the scene and we move on with the plot where once you're ready the castle descends into the desert 
and you move across the mountains and near the city of Collingen. Or Collingen. How do you pronounce it? I've always said Collingen. Yeah, I've said Collingen too. So we'll go with that. So we're here at the city of or town of Collingen, which is a it's just another typical kind of nice small town that you're in. And you start talking to the NPCs and they tell you that a monster flying with gentle eyes was flying towards Jador. Now, Jador is super bougie. This is like the super rich person town and it's to the south. Also in Collingen, this is why you want to bring Locke with you is you get more character development for Locke. And you find out about a character named Rachel, who Locke was with before the game. And you figure out their backstory. Or a little bit of it. You get... I don't think you get the whole thing yet. Is this where... Do they do the flashback here, or is that later? I think it might be later. I know here we can we can hear about Locke and Rachel. We... we pick up that they were a thing we we can wander into the basement of this building and we see a character laying there presumably unconscious and there's this weird ass old man that just goes hee hee after everything he says and he says oh no that's locks oops i, I almost said too much hee hee and it's like, first of all what the fuck but second of all um why is this human unconscious on this table in what kind of looks like, uh, like uh, what would you call it, like an embalming area, like a funeral place, you know? Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, like she's definitely being preserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of creepy. She's she's dead, but she's not. She's just kind of being she's being immortalized. Which I mean, there's all sorts of layers there. Um, yeah, actually, I do think I think I think this is the part where you do get the flashback with Locke. It explains what happened to Rachel and what happened to him. I do think it's here where they they go into how Locke was treasure hunting with Rachel and they go into a cave and uh, there's all of a sudden a little bit of a quake and Rachel falls down. She loses her memory, doesn't remember who Locke is. Then a war, uh, there was a skirmish or part of the of a war where the Empire tried to get into the city. I can't remember the exact specifics of it, but uh, he always tried to get back at Rachel and make Rachel remember who he was. And she never did. And she was turned away and her family hated Locke and thought he was just sort of some lecherous, you know, lovesick twat. And <laughs> then right before uh, this, this attack on, on Collingen where, where Rachel lived that uh, she became seriously injured. And the last thing she said was Locke's name. And then she died. So where Locke is right now is that he asked this this kind of nutso embalmer to keep her perfect until he could figure out a way to revive her. And you don't know. Well, you're not told that he wants to revive her. There's a reason he wants her to be kept perfect. And you don't get that for a long time. But so if you have Celeste with you, and this is why my party is always... Locke, Celeste, Edgar, and Sabin, because you have these character developments. So I did lie before I lied. There is more character development other than Edgar and Sabin at this point. Uh, but if you have Celeste with you, like after, like Locke says, I failed her and walks and the party walks upstairs, Celeste will come back down the stairs, look at Rachel, like to kind of do that head, headward down and say like Locke or something like that, raise her head back up and walk back up the stairs. 
I, I can't believe I missed this on this playthrough. I'm I'm shocked. Yeah, there's there's a lot you can miss. I I remember this scene very well from my first playthrough because it's it's brilliant character development and it's it's a very heavy story for a game you know for for a video game for kids right quote unquote and man I I did a disservice by not writing that down see listeners. This is why I bring on the people to this show to join me who've got the big brains so they can help me <laughs> keep my shit straight. I've just played it a lot. Okay. I've just played it a lot. <laughs> um, but yes, do take Celeste and Locke here. Very important. We're now going towards Jador because that's where people saw Tara going. It's a bit of a hike. You can rent a Chocobo here if you want. Um, this might be my least favorite version of the Chocobo theme. It's like techno. I like it because I like techno, or I did at the time. Yeah. I've I've learned to like the a lot of the other ones more, but I like this one. It's not bad. No. Uh, it's not bad. It's just there are so many good ones. There you go. There's a song but, of the game you don't like. We found yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There you go. Hey, Umatsu, I'm writing you a letter as we speak. Very or angrily. Angle. Whatever. Disappointed in you. Yeah. <laughs> Jador, as you mentioned before, Chris, is a bougie town. It has a prominent class divide. They don't really go into it very much outside of NPC dialogue, which, mm-hmm. if I'm honest, is good. Like, I I love politics and games, like Disco Elysium. Like, that, that's my shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> shout out to the Retro Hangover Review Crew. Um, but I'm really glad they didn't go into it here. It would have gotten the way of, of everything else going on for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I and okay, so I actually did make an oopsie on my notes here. Uh, from Jador, we're heading to a town called Zozo, which is awesome. But yeah. I don't remember why. Like, I don't do. Does somebody just tell us that they saw Tara going that way? I don't quite remember what drives us to Zozo. I don't quite remember either. I think they said that she was flying in that general direction. If you talk to one of the NPCs. Um, also to your class divide point, I more saw the class divide, not so much in Jador itself, but just you have Jador in the South, which is extremely bougie. And then you have Zozo, uh, which is yeah, yeah. very, very, uh, I mean, the, the, the disparity is enormous there. That's completely obvious. Um, and also the way they talk about people in Zozo. And I like, because when you're in Jador, they'll tell you that everyone that lives in Zozo is a bunch of thieves. You can't believe anything that they say. Everyone there lies to you. There's only one person who tells you the truth. So essentially what they're saying is that the poor can't be trusted down there in Jador. And they're yeah. in this case, they're they're right, because that's exactly what it's like in Zozo. So uh, that's what you find out. Yeah, I I am. I'm just glad that they didn't make a big thing about it. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think that kind of uh, like class inequality and class struggle is a very cool thing to explore in video games but here it would have gotten the way you are exactly right though chris they are telling the truth unlike the people in zozo because zozo is uh it is a huge town but it is it's a dungeon the whole town is a dungeon uh great music everybody in the town is hostile towards you um if it's not via the random battles where the townspeople you can assume they're the townspeople are fighting you it's the other folks in the town that will just deliberately lie to you um, the whole time. And it's very cool. Particularly people will lie to you about the time. And the reason for that is because we have to do like a sort of 
clock puzzle where we have to line up the time on the clock correctly. And we can deduce the correct time by talking to everybody and seeing what they say. Uh, and we can check off what they say as lies. So we know somebody says, oh, it's 20 past the hour. We know that's not true. We could definitively say not true. I think towards the end, I think it's like a 50-50 shot and there's no penalty for getting the wrong time. No, I there's no penalty. Something, something like that. No penalty. You can continue. You can just guess every single time until the end of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you could if you take the brute force approach. I mean, hey, it's your game. We won't stop you. No, you'll be bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is presumably if you're this kind of person, this is presumably after you uh, held down the A button for a period of a day to get level sixty. Right. Uh, <laughs> in the beginning game. The, the final boss, once we do the clock puzzle and everything, we get to the top of this building and we encounter the final boss, quote unquote, is just a dude named Dataluma. Um, the fight is, it's not that bad. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really struggle with, I'm never overleveled in JRPGs, but I didn't, I didn't really have much of a problem here. Uh, especially if you have Sabin and, and Edgar with you because they're broken. But, uh, I, you know, sometimes... I think to like that trope that every dungeon needs to have a boss and sometimes they don't do it. I think it, this area would have been better served without a boss. I don't think they needed to have one. It's just so weird. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. So at the top of the tower, we do find Tara after we beat Dataluma, which it's a fun name to say she's resting in a bed. Tara is, and there's a strange old man that appears. Turns out, he is an Esper, an Esper whose name I learned to pronounce correctly after I started learning Japanese. It is Ramu, not Rama. 12-year-old Rick, get it together. Turns out Espers, they can just live in our world. There's nothing stopping them. Um, Ramu has been keeping an eye on Tara, just making sure that she's okay. And she is. She's just significantly and severely overwhelmed from this newly awakened power. Um, and this newly awakened identity. So this, that thematic nugget is continuing on. Mm -hmm. um, we get some background here from Ramu as well. Humans and espers used to live together in harmony until the war of the Magi. What happened was groups of humans from the empire would extract the magic from the espers forcefully and battles were fought between humans and espers because of this. The espers then decided to create a completely new realm for themselves, and they sort of exiled themselves there because they were afraid of being targeted again. Of course, though, Gestal and his men were able to find their way in to continue the hunt of, for the espers. Many of these espers, by the way, are still in the Empire's captivity in a research facility. And if we can rescue them, they might be able to help Terra. This, like, I remember getting to this part for the first time when I played this for the first time back in 2020, and I, which is weird to say, but uh, better late than never, and I remember, like, this is where I was, like, I am all in, like, story-wise. Like, up till now, the characters have been driving everything. Um, we've, we'd get cool little beats like Kefka poisoning Doma, but at this point, I was, like, I am, I'm so in for what this game is doing, and I want more it's very cool yeah I, I actually want to know more about the war of the magi you know because mm -hmm. the, this information is cool i don't think it was the empire for the war of the magi because the war of the magi happened a thousand years before this game 
Oh, okay. I think that's my bad. Yeah. Easy to to make a mistake there. The game doesn't dive too terribly into it, and you could be excused for for thinking that. Uh, but yeah, like the, that's why the espers are like separated. Is like a thousand years ago, there was just a clash between humans and espers, and espers, like you said, exactly what you said. Espers began to uh, have a lack of trust in humans, and essentially they just left each other alone because I think the humans. No, they hid themselves because the humans didn't know where they were and just the Empire ended up finding out where they were because something you find out a little bit later. So, um, Ramu is alive right there because he cowardly hid when they were looking for the espers, but he feels like he can't hide anymore. So, Gestal doesn't know, the Empire doesn't know how to harness the full power out of the espers. They just know how to extract just the essence of the espers and just like with Celeste, give that essence of what they can extract from them and make magic soldiers like that can cast magic and all this stuff like that. But in order to get the full essence of them, once an esper dies, it turns into magicite, which is this distilled power source. Uh, You can also equip them, which because Ramu Right in front of you, he turns into one of these pieces of magicite, and then he also gives you three more pieces, or three more? Is it three more or four more? There's a couple more. It's three more. Three more, uh, which is what? Uh, Siren, Kate Shi, and um, what's the fourth one? Kirin. It's Kirin. And they each teach you different spells. Siren can teach you the, the use of spell of the fire. Um, am I missing one? I feel like I'm missing one. I I only remember Ramu and Keichi. I I I thought there was four though, like total four. I might be thinking about it because you might no, you can't buy them in Jador yet. But yeah, I mean, each of them are going to provide you. You can equip them, and they work as summons if you use them as a magic spell. But they will teach you magic. So now, up until this point, only Celeste and Terra have been able to use magic and kind of ban him because he has the prayer spell which heals everybody. But now. Like, you can start learning these really useful spells, like Cure, you're going to want to get really quickly, uh, Float, and even more importantly, that when you level up and have an Esper equipped, some of these Espers provide bonuses for leveling up. So some of these Espers can have, like, plus one strength, or, you know, plus 10% hit points on top of what you already gain. So making sure these Espers are equipped on you is just as important as the skills that they provide to you just so you can get these little benefits and make sure that your characters are maximized out. But either way, you get a couple of these pieces of Magicite, and then it's time to split up again, because your entire party comes back to Zozo magically uh, to see how everyone's doing and do some quick character exposition before you need to figure out how to get to the Empire and save the rest of the Magicite, because, surprise, you don't have a boat, and it's on another continent. Yep. <laughs> So we're, we're rapidly approaching the point in every Final Fantasy slash JRPG where we're getting our first big vessel to explore the world with. Um, how fun. So we, uh, we got to stop in Jadur first. Um, and while we're there, we learn that there's this famous opera singer named Maria. And we, they've got information that she's going to be kidnapped by this wandering gambler called Setzer. This is character number two from Tetsuya Nomura. Mm-hmm. 
what what sets Setzer? Uh, it seems like Setzer does this often, based on how we hear about this. Um, but he basically like he wants Maria as a wife, and he just I guess he doesn't have time for courting or dating or you know not being a weirdo. So he's like, I'm gonna kidnap her at the opera. You just wait. I'm gonna bust in. My name's Setzer. And because of that, we're like, all right, well, the, we meet the director, the musical director for the opera, which is, they call him Impresario. I don't know why. But anywho's, we find him and he's like, you know, oh, this, this can't be like uh, this. He's going to bust in at the second act and make a huge entrance because he always does. And I just don't know what to do. So we get this plan. Like, what does Maria think of this? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Do we ever even see Maria? We never meet Maria. We never talk to her. <laughs> her opinion in this might be like important. I don't like you never find out ever. <laughs> yeah, we just we never see her. Uh, all we know about Maria is that she looks exactly like Celeste because people keep telling Celeste that like you look just like Maria. You look identical to Maria. And that's when Locke comes up with the brilliant plan. We're like, we're going to let Setzer capture her. Um, but it's not going to be her. It's going to be Celeste because it's, you know, a decoy. And the reason that Locke comes up with this is because Setzer owns the world's only airship. How's that for like deus ex machina for you? Of course. <laughs> like he just happens to own it. Um, so we're going to use Celeste as a decoy to get near Setzer. Pretty good plan. I would say so. I mean, you have just, you know, just coincidentally, you have a character that looks just like an NPC that another character who just so happens to have the only airship in the world is dramatically attracted to. And it just so happens that as soon as you get there, there's about to be the uh, the the events in which he's planning to do so. It just seems like everything's coming up returners, man. It's, it's, everything is just rolling. Like, <laughs> like if you were going to bet like a gambler, which he also is, uh, it would just seem like everything is just, you, you'd be making a killing, man. You'd be, you'd be drowning on the slots. Be great. But, uh, you get to the opera because this is what Maria does. Maria sings. She's a opera singer. And so Celeste has to do this. So interesting thing here. Uh, this gets to the opera scene, but before we actually talk about the opera scene, because it thinks that you really like the opera scene. I am not someone who does. I do not care for the opera scene in the slightest. I never have. Uh, I, I don't, I don't get it. So it seems like you do like it. So I'm waiting to hear your perspective on it because it just hasn't done anything for me. I've talked to someone else about this scene though, uh, specifically for the pixel remaster, because when I'm listening to it, it's like, it, it sounds a little off. Like, I wish it was an Italian. It doesn't sound really like a professional opera singer uh, or like it, it could it like it could have been a lot better in my in my in my mind. Like, I'm just so used to opera being Italian, very more deep throated vocals with a lot more. Uh, was it tremolo uh, and, and that going on? Now, when I talk to somebody, apparently in the Pixar remaster, the reason it doesn't sound as good as it potentially could is because they asked the singer, at least the English singer to not be a give a full opera performance because Celeste herself is an amateur. So they wanted the singer to sing like she's more of an amateur. And I think that's a tremendous touch. That's that's those little attentions to detail that a little attention to detail. That's they didn't have to do that. 
they could have gone full-throated and made it special, but that, that little attention to detail makes things like, like game development special, and that's incredible. Yeah, that was one of the first things that I picked up on with the Pixel Remaster is really, I mean, Celeste, uh, the person voicing Celeste, obviously, like, it's it's okay. Yeah, like, Celeste isn't a trained opera singer. Um, they do it for the man as well, um, who is just, I mean, just a cast member, it seems. Um, and it, it gives it this very, like, uh, community theater kind of vibe, um, which is fine. Like, I, th I think it's a good decision, right? Like, it would have been very cool to hear, like, a real operatic baritone singing this stuff would have been very cool um english italian i mean i personally don't mind but it it is it is a nice touch that they decided to make it as uh, like add some verisimilitude to it right celeste isn't gonna know how to belt she's not gonna know how to control vibrato she's not gonna know how to do any of that she doesn't vibrato, sing she's it. she's a warrior yeah yeah oh you got it you were close enough yeah, that's close. I, no. <laughs> hey, it's close enough for time. jazz, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> Celeste, by the way, she she hears about this plan because she's with us, and she gets really pissed. She says, I'm a general, not some opera floozy, mm -hmm. which gets a laugh out of me every time. Those um, floozies in she opera. Runs, she storms off. Yeah. <laughs> hey, dude, uh, whew, I mean, let, let oh. me tell you some tales of music parties sometimes okay <laughs> i'm down uh, <laughs> so celeste storms off but what's funny is after she gets pissed and runs off we can hear her backstage like me 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 <coughs> me, me 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 like we we hear that and it's it's very funny um and this brings us uh well not quite we we see ultros in the background lurking too uh, and he he's trying to get the attention of everybody we know that he's going to cause problems, but uh, this this brings us to the last point of this episode: the opera. Um, you were right, Chris. I I think this is so cool. This this is it, it's just not often you get to see a full opera, and it's not a full opera to be fair. But like the pit, the musicians are on stage. There's a conductor. The orchestra that's seated is all like, I mean, they're moving like pixel art, <laughs> but. Mm -hmm as far like it looks real it looks like something could be there the venue looks great the aria is performed in full and like yes. and the music the music is so starkly contrasted to what umatsu was writing in the velt and in zozo and and everywhere else it's 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 just you could tell that they they put a lot of care into it and i really respect and appreciate it plus plus the music is really good, yes. and it's very funny. If you talk to, if you talk to Sabin, gets me every time. If you talk to Sabin, uh, when you're locked, like after the opera started, getting a little ahead of myself here. But after the opera started, you can uh, walk around his lock to check on Celis. And if you talk to Sabin, Sabin will go, "Why is everyone singing?" <laughs> like he's at an opera. This this big dumb dude. It's so. It's good, but it's been um, living in the wilderness for like 10 years. 
<laughs> he knows nothing of Verdi. No. He knows he knows nothing of Mozart. He knows how to suplex trains. Yeah. <laughs> and talk to women, apparently. Um without the the, the flusters. Yeah. Well, but same with his brother, are... just a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you go and check up on Celeste's lock. Um lock it's it's a I don't know if this was I can't remember if this was in the SNES, but like Locke uh, gets real red in the yes. face and he yes, gets, he he's like, you know, you look very beautiful, etc. cetera. Um, not in like a, like I, and I want to get with you way, just like a, like you look beautiful, but I'm uncomfortable talking about this right now, yeah. um, which is nice. It's, it's very Locke, but he encourages Celeste to check the score. And this is one of the coolest things here is that while the aria is going on, you have to choose between two options of the lyrics as you're going. There's a right choice and a wrong choice. And, You've in, unless you read the score, check the score, you won't know the lyrics. And that's very cool because otherwise it would have just been the aria taking place and you not doing anything, which would have been fine. It's 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 nice music. But this adds like a little gameplay element to it, a little puzzle. You know, it's and, you know, it's it's nice. I like it a lot. I, I really like this section a lot. And some funny results if you really want to pick the wrong one sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do that this time. Um I, I did pick all the right ones, but now that they're voiced in the pixel remaster, I would be curious to hear the the wrong choices happen. Right. Especially because it's sung. Um, I will say this about the pixel remaster. It's another thing that kind of grates me. And same with the, the blitzes, by the way, we haven't just, some, I guess a little pixel remaster difference break here. I'll start with the opera because we're here. Uh, you have to move your ass in the opera, like in the super Nintendo version. I think you move Celeste manually through the, the entire thing anyway, I think for the most part. Uh, whereas in the Pixar Master, it's guided. But then when you get the choice to move Celeste, you have the uh, ability to do so because it's in the Octopath, you know, 2D, 3D graphical style. Like you start dancing with the, the represent the, the manifestation of Draco, you know, Maria's love. And like every single time it moves, you have to like, be precise. You have to move your ass to get to him or the song ends and it's over where in the super Nintendo version, you, you can kind of like fudge around and pudge around a little bit. And you don't get any penalty. So yeah, like I failed the opera like unintentionally because I thought I could just kind of soak in the environment in the, in the pixel remaster, which that's not something I did in the super Nintendo version. You have like a lot more time to do it. Uh, and briefly before we carry on here, the blitzes in the pixel remaster, like you have to try and fail a blitz. And it tells you exactly how you're supposed to do it. I think it's 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 selectable in the Pixel Remaster, if I recall correctly. Right, you like pick the one you want to do, and the game is like yep. press this button every single way that you go. And it's like it's so OP that I don't want the game holding my hand to do a blitz. Like he's already broken. Just let it let it be. Um, I don't like that. I like the Super Nintendo one. It's more unintrusive too, where you just select blitz, you make your input, you press A, and you you carry on with life. But Anyway, enough ranting about that. The opera... Well, be before you move on, yeah. I'm so sorry. Because um, no, I wanted to talk about the Blitzes before. I just forgot. Um, I do agree with you. I think since they're so powerful, the Super Nintendo version is good. The thing about the Super Nintendo version that I don't like is I remember it not being explained clearly at all. Like, I had to look up how to do... Like, how Blitzes work. Because, like, when you click Blitz in the Super Nintendo version... 
nothing happens. Like no extra screen comes up. Mm-hmm. Your cursor just stays there. Oh, it goes and... to Sabin. It points at him. You blitz and it points at Sabin. Okay. Okay. But that's all it but does. But I, I, I still don't remember like, I don't remember it explaining it very well. And I got really frustrated with Vargas whenever that happened. Um, I do think it's too handholdy in this one to just select which one and it gives you the combo on screen. So even so far as taking away the button prompts as you press them just to show you like where you're at, it's a bit much. Um, I am thankful that I didn't have to relive it like, uh, well, it wouldn't matter because I had played it before, but I am I am thankful that new folks won't have to like, you know, be frustrated for five minutes figuring out like, what the yeah. hell do I do here? Yeah, I I had that frustration the first time I played. I do remember that frustration because I did have the manual. I look it up and it's like pummel forward, back, forward. So I press A, it point at Sabin. I press forward, back, forward. It's like, okay, forward, back, forward. It's not doing anything. And then like I try something else. I try a different blitz input. I press A. Like, I don't know what's happening. And they say wrong blitz input. I'm like, I hate you. Uh, so yeah, there's <laughs> there's that about the Super Nintendo version. But uh, moving on to the opera here, and this is what I don't like, and this is why like I don't get it. Like I like the music; the music's fantastic. I love the the live arrangements. Every line of arrangement I've heard of this, like the, especially the full version, so good. But uh, and the in the Final Fantasy uh, six Final Fantasy Chronicles PlayStation release where they have the movies and they they have that part where they play the music there too oh yeah i mean the the representation and the the reimagining of this scene i think is actually far better than the scene itself because i've heard people muse that this scene is supposed to represent the kind of held back emotions that celeste has for Locke and is supposed to be representative of their relationship sure on one hand it feels a bit too on the nose for me uh, it feels a little forced, and I just didn't feel the real relationship between those two characters yet. I think it was more assumed than than developed. It wanted you to to know that, hey, these characters are going to hook up later on, and this is the romantic interest. And, you, and you, they kind of planted, to say something I probably said too often in this episode, planted those seeds that that was going to happen. But then it got to this point. It's like, I'm not feeling it. I never really felt it. Um, maybe other people did. And we were like, oh, yeah, her relation her, her feelings for Locke are so strong. But even so, that's not like the overarching theme of the game. There's so much more to just dedicate an entire scene to that. I understand it's very character driven, but this is really when the story itself is starting to really develop in its own right and outside the characters. And to, to focus it on those two characters in a, in a game where it's not supposed to have any primary protagonist in and of itself, even though, again, like we stated earlier, you could argue it is Celeste. This scene just feels it feels a little too forced and slightly out of place in the entire scope of the narrative. I can I I can appreciate where you're coming from. I am not sure that I would use the word forced. However, I think if I just had to guess, the intention that I'm reading from this is more of like I don't think the average player going through this is going to get to this opera scene and have the wherewithal to analyze it because there's so much else going on. There's, I mean, it's a full fledged opera now. So much is going on around it. This, it, it came off to me as something a little extra for 
players that are, may, are maybe playing it for the second time and and have been through the story before, just as a little like, hey, like the development team was thinking about this even way back when, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily something like we are inserting this to build character growth. That's how it came off to me. I never, I mean, I, I've heard those takes about the opera um, representing Celeste's uh, true feelings fine like it's not it's not a read that i would i'm not gonna die on the hill you know i don't believe in it that strongly but like you know it's not it's not so egregiously out there that i would say no that's that's hodgepodge or like that's bullshit it's just like okay like if that's what you got from it cool like really cool really great for you uh me personally though i don't i just want to move on (laughs) like i don't want to analyze the opera you know like that's that's how i felt going through it (laughs) i i can understand that too and i think it, sometimes developers just do things because they're cool. And I think oh, there, yeah. there was an element there to that where we can do an entire opera in this game. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be rad? And they're like, yeah. And so they did it. And I think, I think maybe that's what it was. I don't, I would love to see an interview more about the opera or just be a fly on the wall during the development phase. It's like, let's have an opera in this game. I'm like, why? It's like, why not? Cause we can, cause it's a cinematic game. It's, <laughs> I've always wanted to kind of make a movie anyway, if I'm Sakaguchi. So, hey, let's let's give it a shot. And in that aspect, yeah, it's a really cool scene. I guess when you look back at it, it's it's advanced for the time. And it just I guess age has kind of spoiled me in the replays and everything else that comes with it. So maybe I'm just being a curmudgeon. That's what it is. I am just an angry old curmudgeon that that has no fun anymore. I'm a miserable human being. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god it's like it's like we're two peas in a pod man like like <laughs> we it's like we've known each other all our lives i'm right there with you i'm right there with you After after we perform the aria, um, Locke finds a note from Ultros. Ultros tried to deliver this earlier. Nobody saw it, and he was like, why didn't anybody read my letter? But we find it now as Locke, and it just says something along the lines of like, hey, you helped me out before, so now I'm going to disrupt your opera. Signed, Ultros. Like, something like that. Um, something silly. So we go, we go to tell the impresario, or the director, however you want to think of it, and as we tell him, we look up and we can see Ultros like up there in the rafters on the scaffolding. He's got these weights that he wants to like push off onto the performers on stage. And it's this is another thing that cracks me up every time is that Ultros goes to like yeah. maneuver these weights and he's like, oh my gosh, they're so heavy. This is going to take me five whole minutes. And then a timer yeah. starts. Yeah. <laughs> like this it's- happens again later too with, with Sabin and it's just. It's it, so it, might, funny. it says like five tons on it too. Might as well just say Acme on the on the on yeah. the anvil. It's just He's like Wiley Coyote over here. It's so cartoonish. It's like here's this really serious opera scene, and here, yeah, exactly. Wiley Coyote is trying to drop an anvil on your character's head. <laughs> but it it still works. I don't know how they did it, but it works. Right on the heels of like a very heartfelt aria like yes. about love it's 
This is like, man, like I, 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 this is what I was talking about earlier with the goofiness of, of these older final fantasies. I miss it, dude. Like, like I know a lot of people have a lot of affection for like the bromance that is final fantasy 15 and that's fine. Whatever, do what you want. But like, I miss when the series like knew when to not take itself seriously. Yeah. I mean, and you, and you fight rats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, everything you fight rats, wear rats. In fact, not just any rat, but wear rats. Um, so I hope that you've made it to level 14. So Sabin has his fire dance, because if you don't, you're going to be struggling because they they do hit pretty hard. But yes. Yeah. You got, and you. I hope you learn some magic, too, because you had an opportunity to learn some magic from your from your newly acquired espers. And that will help you out greatly in the battles to come. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We uh we get to Ultros after navigating his like were rat army, and uh we accidentally the the two of us or I should say all of us like our party and Ultros, we fall like right onto the stage as it's going on. <laughs> uh, on Draco, obviously. What's that? On, I think on Draco. Uh yes yes I think you're right. And the and the guy yeah. he was fighting the 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 rival. Sorry. No no you're fine yeah. and that obviously that stops the whole production. At this point, the director runs out and he's like, oh, this is horrible. And Locke, Locke is is a, a fucking mensch. He he gets up and he tries to improvise this off. Like he's trying to be a professional and he tries to improvise it by saying, no, Maria will never marry you and etc. Only to have the director like out loud mock him and say like, wow, well, I've never heard such poor acting in my life. <laughs> It's and but thankfully Ultros joins in too, which brings us into our fight. And you know, then the director is like all into it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I just he just shits on Locke like immediately. I thought that was so funny. I, I like too that like Ultros isn't just trying to stop them because he has some nefarious plan. It's like he just does this for fun. Like yeah. when he drops the note earlier that Locke reads, he just like. And he ignores it at the beginning. It's like, oh, you didn't read my note. He says, I just want to spoil your fun. He just wants to, like, be a massive troll. That's all that Altros is. He is he is a troll before trolling was a thing. He is just, well, probably plenty of examples in literature where trolls are things. But he is a troll. He is, he is a great troll. And I love it. But then you have to fight him. And you do. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah. Like, yeah. Where again, fire comes comes into handy. So hopefully your characters know the fire spell. And uh, I think you're in a pincer attack formation for this, where you have two characters on either side, I believe. Yes. Yes, you are. Pretty much any fight in this game with Ultros, I mean, I don't want to say they're all really hard, but like they can he can get you at pretty much any time you fight him. Like he's not a pushover, like like Kefka pretends to be for, for most of the game. Yeah. You gotta stay on it because he can blind your characters. Uh, I think he has a certain counter that he does use when you have fire. So if you're going to use fire, you have to be prepared. Hopefully you have enough uh, tinctures and potions or whatever they call it uh, later on. Uh, potions and high potions available with, with cure spells. Because, yeah, he can mess up your day pretty bad at this point if you're not prepared. Uh, and eye drops. Can't forget those. Of course. Um, so we fight off Ultros as we do, mm-hmm. and this is right when Setzer pops down. Just as just as everybody knew he would, he makes this big dramatic entrance, coming in, and he's you know he's here to take Celeste. He's like just like I said I would. Um, the director loves this. At this point, the director's all in. He's like 
telling the audience what a twist this is and like make sure to come back next time for part two because I guess he's just writing part two of a new opera now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which never happens. Yeah, no. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> it is unclear to me. So Setzer takes Celeste, just as we all planned, and he, 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 he takes her onto his ship. It's unclear to me how the rest of the gang follows and ends up there. Like they climb up through this like opening that Celeste helps them out with. Uh, Celeste, excuse me, but I, 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 maybe my eyes were just glazing over at this point for whatever reason, mm. but I, I just don't know how they got there. It's insinuated that when she gets up there and I don't know how she knows how to do this. I think that's the real question is like, she lets down a line or lets down a ladder to let them up. Ah, uh, that makes, okay. okay. So it's like, it was planned out, but they never said it was planned out. It's just like, Hey, you're abducted and figure it out. Like, how does she know the layout of the airship? It's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Because video games. That's why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's just one of the, you, you got to suspend your disbelief sometimes. You just got to say, okay, and move on. You just fought an octopus trying to push a five ton weight or four ton weight onto your characters <laughs> while fighting were rats in the scaffolding. Yeah. And this is the point you want to quibble with. How do they get onto the airship? Yeah, okay, the airship. pal. <laughs> <laughs> Folks. This is where we're cutting it for today for part two. Um, I, well, before, before I get there, um, for next time, because so much is shifting behind the scenes right now, I cannot say for certain where we will play up to for the next time or talk about up to for the next time. Um, my goal, my personal goal is for the next recording to beat the game or get as far ahead as I can. That does not mean we're going to cover the full game in the next episode, um, I really wish I could give you a better, better stopping point. I'll put it in the description of the next episode for sure. Um, so I thank you for your grace as we kind of navigate these changes that are going on. And I want to give, I, and I'm sure he's sick of hearing this an, an, another supreme shout out and thanks to you, Chris, for, for being so accommodating and for, for helping me out, uh, you know, while, uh, while I'm figuring it out now that Ben has has important things that he needs to deal with. So thank you. Uh, ben says thank you, too. Like, he told me to tell you that. Um, we, we appreciate you very much. And, uh, again, we appreciate all of you listening very much, too, for, for your grace in this in this period. And, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for continuing to allow me to be on your show. It's uh, I do enjoy being on your show. I, I love listening to your show. I love supporting your show, and I'll do whatever I can to support you. So um, if that includes you allowing me and giving me the opportunity to talk about Final Fantasy VI, I will gladly take it. And I appreciate every, every, every effort you've made to make sure this happens, and I will return that effort in kind. So thank you so much, Rick. I, I do appreciate it and I look forward to going through this journey of Final Fantasy VI with you. Folks, if you haven't checked out Retro Hangover podcast, please do. They are one of my favorites. I, I haven't been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, I will say that. But Retro Hangover is one of the finest in in the you know video game community that we've got. Um, also a very fun Discord. I will have the link tree in the, the episode description. The Discord is a ton of fun. There's a review channel. Uh, my ass is getting stomped in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater <laughs> 1 and 2 on the warehouse level for their <laughs> monthly challenge. It's a really great time. I highly recommend it. Um, and I highly recommend you join ours as well. We don't have a cool review channel, uh, but everybody is very kind. It's not too big. And yeah, it's just a really good time. You might get extra info on the show uh, stuff in advance. 
things like that. You can find that link on our <clears throat> in our episode description. You can also find it on our socials, Twitter and Instagram, Pixel Project Radio. You can find us there. And you can also find us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Pixel Project Radio. We have a host of really, really kind people that, like me and Ben, value supporting small artists. Uh, podcasting, creating podcasts is an art form. It just is. And it's really cool to be able to help smaller creators that don't have the big bucks like, you know, some of our other favorite podcasts like Stuff You Should Know or This American Life. Uh, it's a good feeling. If you wanted to check it out, you could go there. We've got a couple of different tiers. It's totally up to you. Never expected, always appreciated. So that's patreon.com slash pixelprojectradio. Linktree for Retro Hangover in the episode description. But until next time, check all of that out. Take care of yourself. I'm Rick Firestone once again, joined by very good friend and co-host Chris Copleen. We hope you have a great rest of your day, rest of your week. Get that thing checked out. Say hello to your mother. We'll catch you next time. Bye.